Right, now that we have our Bibles open to Judges chapter 8, we'll read. So read from verse 1. <clears throat> then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the man of Succoth, Please give loaves and bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zamuna into my hand, I will flail your f- flesh with thorns and the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zamuna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, and the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zamuna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zamuna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and answered him, or questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are you the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and that took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. Then he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zomuna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. <coughs> Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if, he had saved them, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was a young man. Then Zebad Zamuna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, and as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zebad and Zamuna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the cannibals. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of the Midianites. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered him, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. 
And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the multiple and the purple, purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod and put ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon or so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, who also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Bezrites. Let us pray. <coughs> we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds. That you would remind us of the gospel of your son, as seen through the words and through the narrative of Gideon. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So see in your sermon notes, there's four points which we'll go through, and the title of this is The People's King, which, like I said, is an ironic statement. Why the people's king and not God's king? But before we start, receiving compliments is always great, especially when you don't ask for them. But aren't there times when you or we have nailed the test, landed the big clients, lost 20 pounds, or holding to any New Year resolution for longer than a month? And you start looking for a compliment. But you don't ask for it directly. You kind of skirt around the topic. You ask leading questions or look like you're not trying to actively point out your accomplishment. Finally, though, the person you're talking to takes the baits. You look great. Have you lost any weight? Yes, they gave me the compliments. You've reeled it in. This is, this is a little bit like Gideon. He comes from that humble background that we talked about two weeks ago in Judges 6 and 7. He he looks like he denies kingship. He denies what the people are offering to him. But he sure looks like he's exercising this role and not exercising it according to God's precepts, but exercising it kind of like a pagan. So Gideon, this lowly leader of Israel who leads Israel into battle and defeats her oppressors. We see this in Judges 6-7. So we read Judges 8 and we wonder, what happens? You're raised from humility to save the people and yet it looks like you fell. So this lowly leader grows from this humility in chapters 6-7 to to really an idol constructing, he builds a golden ephod and he kills his people. 
So he fights his own people for the first half of the chapter. Leads them to worship an idol, yet he's the king that they want. So how can we affirm with the preacher to the Hebrews that Gideon had faith in the one to come? Whom we look to as well. We can look to Gideon and say, my how far you've fallen. And yet he still looked to the promise to come. We can say the same for us. How far we have fallen. Yet we are still chosen. And so we'll answer this by looking at four distinct parts of this narrative in chapter 8. And you'll see these in your sermon outline. So the first one being this reversal of war. What was supposed to be a war against the Canaanites is now a war against his own people. And the next we'll see is revenge of the king. He fights his own people. He's saying, you didn't give me bread. Now I'm going to take you down. And we'll see Gideon's reign. Even though he tells them, no, I don't want kingship. He still reigns over them as a pagan king. And then lastly, and quite shockingly, they're given rest. Right in the midst of their sin. And also, shockingly, this last verse, although it's a little hidden, Gideon's actually connected with Abraham and David in the line of Christ, giving us hope that even in the midst of our sin, the lowest of our sin, we are still saved. So in Christ, we get the king crowned by God, who fights for you and ever reigns with you. And we'll see this kind of in the opposites with Gideon. So we have high hopes, like we talked about, for this judgeship of Gideon after his rise from humble beginnings, brought up by the Lord, vested with the spirits to show the sovereignty and the power of the Lord over and against every pagan altar. So we look at chapter 8, and we have to ask, what happens? Where'd you go wrong? So in the first few verses, verses 1 through 9, we'll start with reversal. Reversal of war. Immediately after Gideon calls for reinforcements to assure his victory, like we talked about two weeks ago, which is not what the Lord asked him to do. He purposely pulled back from the army to show his glory. Verses 1 through 3 should be surprising. Verses 1 states, Then the man of Ephraim said to him, What is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. So beginning of chapter 7, if you remember, there's kind of this harmonious relationship or the end where he pulls them back into the war. They fight even though it's against the Lord's desires. And the ones who are kind of left off in the back are asking him, why didn't you involve us in this fight? Why didn't you allow us to fight and see this glory for ourselves? 
which is precisely what Judges 7-2 says the Lord doesn't want to happen. He wants the glory and not the people. So Gideon's our leader. How is he going to respond to this? In verse 2, Gideon alludes to himself, is not the gleaning of the grapes, and compares his heroic actions to Ephraim. Gideon, that one who comes from the wine press. That was him. He was beating in the wine press. Not the expected response from a leader for God's glory. I'm the one. And Gideon continues his response to Ephraimites by reminding them that God has delivered the Midianites, Oreb, and Zeb into their hands. But he doesn't use the covenantal name of the Lord. He uses kind of this this generic name for God. And after Gideon's initial confrontation with the Ephraimites doesn't go as we should expect, after a successful battle, he embarks on a personal mission. And notice, who's not telling him to do this? Who's not talking to him at all before he goes in this battle, this personal vendetta? There's no mention whatsoever. The Lord tells him, please go and do this. I'm investing you with the spirits. Please go take them on. And we'll see why. The answer of the officials of Sukkoth is, is kind of perplexing, too. Furthering the idea that these Israelites, they're not cohesive. They're not unified with Gideon. They might know something's up. This guy who was raised from humble beginnings to be our deliverer, he might not have our best intentions in mind. And so in verse 6, for some reason, there's, there's reason for those in Sukkoth to not respond positively to Gideon's question. They're probably not being obstinate to Gideon. They're probably looking at him and saying, that's not our leader. That's not the one to lead us. But then the way Gideon responds is shocking. In verse 7, this conditional statement uttered by that same humble Gideon in in chapter 6 to 7, he tells those in Sukkoth, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So why should this shock us? Are the Sukkoths from Canaan? They're from Israel. He's telling this to Israelites. He's supposed to be delivering his people. What's he now doing? He's fighting his people. He just promised to punish his own people. And so thus begins Gideon's selfish judgeship. What looks promising, Israel's deliver to come, no longer looks promising. This vengeful judge, not whom the Lord has directed him. And then in verses 8 to 9, you hear much the same thing. It says, and from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. So he goes over to another people group and tells them precisely the same thing. 
Additionally, Gideon says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So the word used here is shalom. When I come to you in shalom, when I come to you in peace, it's not a regular word in the book of Judges. So sit with this. Gideon is combining the peace, the rest, and the welfare of the Lord with his personal mission to break down this tower. And to add salt to this wound, Penuel means face of God. So he's effectively saying this to God and his people. In Judges 6.22, we see effectively the same phrase. Gideon meets the messenger of Yahweh and proclaims, I have seen the Lord face to face. And now what's he doing? He's breaking down that same tower. He was once terrified by the majesty and holiness of God. And now what, it, what, what does it look like he's doing? He's intense on destroying it. Now, this is shocking. The very one raised is now intense on destroying the Lord's presence. There is a sense of Acts 8 and 9 here. We know Paul, formerly Saul, persecutor, of the church of God and then is saved by the one whom he persecuted. Saul is one who formally would kill Christians, lead them to prison, but then taken by the majesty of God to himself. We see a little bit of this within Gideon. So we can say with ourselves, how, how far have we fallen? How far have we still fallen? We were formerly blasphemers. Even to this day, we desired nothing of the kingdom of God. We still struggle with this. We still struggle, I still struggle with our imagination gone wild. We wonder, can God still save somebody like me? Can God still take this burden upon himself? Paul persecuted the church of God, killed Christians. Gideon threatened and eventually followed through to destroy the cities of Succoth and Penuel. Yet the book of Hebrews said he lived by faith. We say, how comforting is this for us to know the Lord is sovereign even over your sin? Your backsliding, our backsliding stubbornness, our thought life, everything for the glory of Christ. And so Gideon has begun his path towards revenge. He's, he's seething because of a fractured Israelite people against him. They've turned on him. And his own unmet expectations. He's no longer acting as the deliverer of his people. He's looking more like the foreign oppressor, no longer the oppressed, no longer those who are under 
another people. And so he turns. He starts turning even more intensely on his people. Brings to revenge. Verses 10 through 21. So Gideon's kind of already stated his war path. He tells them, I'm going to take you down. You were formerly my people. We were formerly unified. I'm going to take you down. And he goes after two previously stated kings, Zeba and Zamuna. In verse 10, we see the carnage that was sovereignly administered by the king, or by the foreign oppressor of his people. So they were brought from 135,000 people to 15,000 people. And these oppressors, they're not in Israel. But in Karkor, which is east of the Jordan, they're not touching Israel right now. So Gideon goes outside of Israel to take on another people that he was not told to take on. This is not harem warfare. He's not told, go exterminate from Israel to set up my holy presence. He goes outside of his mission. In verses 11 to 13, Gideon attacks the Midianites in their territory, securing the escaped Zeba and Zamuna, and returns with the spoils of his personal victory. Again, stressing this, there's not a single sign, not a single word of the Lord, either approving or mentioning to Gideon to do this, to take this mission. It's probably all of Gideon's doing. He's like, you mess with me, I'm going to mess with you. So then Gideon goes right back to Succoth in verse 14, takes the young man, questions him, and tells him to write down for him the officials and elders of Succoth. So he's going to complete this mission he set out for himself in, in verse 6. He has Zeba and Zamuna in his grasp pronouncing victory and pronouncing judgments on Israel, his people. And then like a little boy or girl who doesn't get their way, certainly not indicative of the judge of Israel, he brings the proof of the victory that those in Succoth taunted him with. So he's not purging impurity, What's he doing by bringing impurity into Israel? He's not taking them out. He's bringing impurity right back in. And verses 16 to 17 shows this carnage. Verse 16, he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. These are Israelites. He's teaching the Israelites. It's almost translated, he tread over them. He trampled over them. And breaking down the tower of Penuel, the face of God, much like he did when he broke down the altars of Baal and the Asherah in chapter 6. So who's the oppressor now? Is it outside Israel? Or is it inside Israel? It looks like they're turning into the Canaanites. The verse 18 foreshadows what's to come when Zeba and Zamuna answer Gideon. Every one of them resembled 
the son of a king. And then the seemingly pious statements from Gideon in verse 19. As the Lord lives, if you had saved him alive, I would not kill you. It's kind of the MO of Gideon. I tell you one thing, I do another. Which is kind of our MO. We tell you one thing, I tell you one thing, we do another. This is further pushed in by verse 20. When Gideon invokes this raising language that's exclusively used by the Lord every time previous to this, except for Deborah, who speaks as his mouthpiece and tells Barak to rise up. Gideon's commissioning in verse 20, his own divine battle, saying, I don't need you, Lord, anymore. I can do this. I got my own interest in minds. And so he does this for his own battle. And then in light of what happens in verses 22 to 28, verse 21 starts making a lot more sense. At the end of verse 21, we read, And he, Gideon, took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. These were universally recognized as kingship ornaments. You take it, you're a king. That's Gideon's spoil. He could have taken a whole lot else, but he takes specifically kingship ornaments. So what he's about to do with Israel makes a whole lot more sense in light of verse 21. So with these ornaments in hand, a personal mission executed against his own people, driving Israel out of the land instead of Canaan, and actually bringing Canaan into the land... Israel recognizes her king, which brings to the reign of the king. So verse 22 can come out of nowhere if we don't take verses 1 through 21 as our context. Yet the language, the way they do it, and the ends are all against what Deuteronomy says a king should be raised as. In the context of Judges and Joshua, the word used here for rule is more often than not used as an oppressive king, an oppressive ruling. It's not the expected word for reign of a king or be king over. They also likely recognize Gideon. They call him king because he looks like a king. He's got kingship ornaments on. He just took over those two kings, put on their ornaments, and now he's shocked that they're asking him to be his king. And so notice what they attach. You and your son and your grandson also. What does this sound a lot like? The covenant given to David in 2 Samuel 7. You your sons, your grandsons after you. It's kind of like they're covenanting with him. So they recognize their king. They covenant with him. This pagan-looking king violates every rule from Deuteronomy 17. Everything that possibly could have gone wrong went wrong. The people want a king in their image. 
just like us. We want a king in our image. And Gideon fits this to a T. This pagan king lifted up. And then a seemingly pious answer from Gideon now doesn't shock us anymore. It's effectively negated by what he does next and what he did previous. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not your king. I don't know why you're looking at me with all the kingship ornaments on. I act like a king. I look like a king. I'm not sure why you're asking me to be king. He says, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He's probably just trying to act humble. Because what he does after this negates everything he says. His answer is proving meaningless with verses 24 to 27. 24, verse 24, should sound familiar if we know the book of Exodus. It's exactly the same as Aaron's request of the Israelites in Exodus 32. Another allusion to the golden calf in the book of Judges. The last one being Eglon and Ehud. The golden earrings that Gideon asked for is precisely what Aaron asked for in Exodus 32. They're both used in idol-making ceremonies. And the verse 25 should strike us as well. The people say, we will willingly give them. Sounds a lot different than the beginning of chapter 8 when there's a lot of division. Now they're pagan, their king's pagan. This relationship makes a lot of sense. Israelites sure seem unified by this idol worship set up by Gideon himself. Verse 26, 1,700 shekels of gold is about 43 pounds. Quite the hefty ephod, as verse 27 points out. Ephod being the vestments of a priest. The high priest lined out in Exodus. So catch this irony. Gideon, formerly vested with the spirits, literally clothed with the spirits, makes clothing for a pagan king and says, I am now your king, vested with this ephod. A monumental reversal of true worship just from two chapters ago. When what did he break down? the altar of Baal. And now, he sets it right back up. And what else does this verse say? Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, he keeps all the garments of kingship for himself. He sure looks like he's king, even though he doesn't say he's king. And verse 27 concludes, Israel hoard after it the idol in Ophrah. And so we've heard the weakness and hesitancy in Gideon, testing the Lord to find out if he's the liver of Israel, and seeing this play out in chapter 7. 
But now we hear that Gideon has fallen into idol worship. And he's made the Israelites fall into idol worship. How is it possible to square their failure, his failure, downright failure, with what we're told about Gideon in Hebrews 11? We're even in the midst of his sin. The preacher to Hebrews says, he has faith in the one to come. Brings to our last points, rest. And so it's, it's likely the epilogue, the ending of this, is, is a couple years, some years after the first few events from verses 1 through 27. And what's astonishing about how this starts, how verse 28 starts? What's astonishing is the land is given rest after they hoard after idols. They're still given rest. The Lord is still with them. In verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. Utilize what's called this divine passive. It doesn't look like Gideon really did anything. It's the Lord's doing. He says, you have failed, yet I am still faithful. I am still faithful to you. I will accomplish my purposes even through in the midst of your sin. And then verse 29, the author uses the other name, probably the proper name of Gideon, Drubal, emphasizing the ending of this idle narrative. And in verses 30 to 31, add even more insult to injury after the worship of idols, with Gideon fathering 70 sons with the many wives he had, including a concubine in Shechem who bore Abimelech. And there's a lot in this. First, Shechem, where the concubine's from, is not in Israel. It's in Canaan. So Gideon goes outside of Israel to marry somebody, which is directly against what the beginning of Judges talks about. And the son bore to this Shechemite woman. Gideon calls Abimelech, which should shock us if we took Gideon seriously. When he told them, I am not your king. Because Abimelech means my father the king. What? For man who told Israel, I will not rule over you, he sure sounds like that's exactly what he did. Even confirming this by naming his son, my father the king. In verse 32, it's easy to miss. Yet it's key to our understanding of Gideon and how the preacher of the Hebrews sees faith in the one to come and we can take comforts in the faith, the one to come. When it says in the beginning of verse 32, and Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Buzrites. So the key phrase to grasp and milk and dwell on is died in a good old age. Because you look at that phrase and you say, it doesn't sound like you did good things. Why is this good old age? And so this pairing only occurs four times in the entire Old Testament. 
First one is Genesis 15, 15, which we heard a couple weeks ago. Occurs immediately after the Lord walks through the severed halves, taking on the responsibility to fulfill his promise to Abraham to spread his seed across the land, even the borders of his worship. The last occurrence is with 1 Chronicles 29 of David, who offered sacrifice in the temple of the Lord precisely as he was supposed to. So the author is linking Gideon with Abraham and with David. Saying this one, even in the midst of his sin, even in the midst of his pagan worship, even in the midst of killing his own people, just like Saul to be converted to Paul, had faith in the one to come. Saved from his sin. Looked to the one to come. This, this kind of, it looks a little bit like David. It looks a little bit like Paul. Those with immense sin backgrounds. Having faith in the one to come. The most unlikely of deliverers coming from the wine press. Stumbling mightily in Judges 8. Has faith in the one to come. So the ending of Gideon is a note of hope. A note of hope to us. A link from Abraham to David, right in the middle being Gideon, shows us this faith in the one to come. This hope overshadowing oppression. This hope overshadowing and conquering sin. This little seed in Judges 8.32 is our hope. Even in the midst of our sin. Even in the midst of our worst days. Even in the midst of our worst thoughts. What we have done, what we will do. Even in that midst. We have faith in the one to come. It does not matter about our backgrounds. It does not matter what we've done. It does not matter how much sin that we have perpetrated. It does not matter how many thoughts we've had, how many altars we've constructed. It does not matter. Gideon had faith in the one to come. And Judges 8.32 points us to this. Though we, like Gideon, have fallen into an incredible amount of sin, we are in this same covenant. God is still faithful to us in the least likely spot in the narrative, right at the end of all pagan worship, it says Gideon died in a good old age. And so we trust in Christ, the one who fulfilled the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 15. is a king that both Gideon points to negatively and fulfills the perpetual kingship that David has promised in 2 Samuel 7. Christ is our king, even in the midst of our sin, both now and forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can look to Gideon, we can be pointed to our sin, to the depths in our depravity, 
We know even in the midst of our sin, like you say in Romans 5, Christ came for sinners like us. And so we praise you and we thank you. May we rest in the knowledge that you have saved us from our sin as you have Gideon, as you have all of these that you've talked about in your word. This gives us hope for us and for those who do not yet know who you are. Pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.